Today's message is entitled, Psalm 2, Understanding and Responding to Persecution. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 13 and going through to verse 37. The verses of focus are verses 23 through 31. Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside, to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they may speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So all of us have been afraid before. We have faced threats and we have felt fear. What is your relationship with fear? What is your relationship with the threats that are in your life? Particularly threatenings associated with persecution that are designed to silence you and cause you to leave Christ in the closet. What points of leverage does this world have over you so that you're not bold in every situation, so that you actually are afraid and controlled by your fear? What attacks or threatened attacks can silence you? 
Are you in the battle? Is persecution even necessary for you or for your family? Or have the other conforming powers of this world been effective in your life? The baubles and the distractions and the pleasures of this world that keep us from being kingdom-minded Christians who follow Him. Persecution only comes when we're in the battle. Have you ever taken the time to ponder Psalm 2 in preparation for persecution? You, as a faithful Christian, are a much greater threat to the rulers and the kings of this earth who have set themselves against God. You are a much greater threat to them than they can ever be to you. The threats are real, but they're nothing compared to the threats that the Son of God has placed upon those who dare to stand in rebellion against Him. So have you ever taken the time to ponder Psalm 2 in preparation for persecution? Do you understand that as a Christian you need to prepare for persecution? The people of God in Acts... They understood it. They had this scripture readily available at this time. In this text, we see how we must be informed of the principles of Psalm 2 in order to be prepared to deal with the hellish, diabolical ragings that we will surely face as we walk on in this world in Christ, under His reign, carrying out His kingdom's work, loving Him, proclaiming his gospel everywhere we go, and submitting ourselves to His law of love and becoming this beautiful family, church, society that rains down the glory of the Son on this earth. Expect persecution. And if you haven't received it yet, then you might want to ask yourself, what is wrong with you? You might want to ask yourself that. Because if you are walking closely with Him, you will be persecuted. So today, what are we going to do? We're going to look at a brief overview of this passage in preparation for future sermons on this passage. And then we'll spend the bulk of our time looking at Psalm 2. It's important, I think, for us to understand all the principles in Psalm 2, not just those quoted in today's text. Today's text quotes verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 2. But in that, we see the kernel of everything that is in Psalm 2. Everything that's behind them, informing them in their prayers. We'll look at the general question from David in verses 1 through 3. We'll look at the Father's response, our Heavenly Father in His derision and in His wrath. And He goes on to enthrone His King, demonstrating the utter impotence of any resistance. And then we see and hear the enthroned Son King reporting to us through the mouth of David, the Father's commission. It's Jesus reporting to us what the Father said to him when he enthroned him and gave him his commission. And then from this, David goes on as the prophet to exhort and to warn the kings of the earth how they should respond, how any sane person would respond to such a king. And then David encourages all those who trust the Son King in the final bit of Psalm 2 with the blessings that are ours in Him. And then, for the purposes of application, we'll talk through some principles uh, from Psalm 2 regarding understanding and uh, responding properly to persecution. So first of all, the brief overview of this passage. The setting is given to us in 23a. And being let go, they went to their own companions. So Peter and John have been commanded by the Sanhedrin to stop spreading the gospel or face severe punishments. And these punishments uh, were leveled at them in order to silence them and the punishments would have been spelled out to them likely in specifics. Hey, you could have financial problems from this. You could be imprisoned. You could uh, have faced lots of legal difficulties from this. These were severe threatenings that they laid before them and they would have been specific. So their first response is to go back to their own people true church, the believers at that time in Jerusalem. So where did they go when they were threatened? Well, they did not lay aside their calling and go home to Galilee. They did not allow themselves to be conformed 
to what this persecution wanted them to do. Next, they give report. So the text says, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Peter and John heard it all, and then they went to their companions, the people of God in Jerusalem at that time, and they told them everything they heard. Every command, every threat of the council they talk about. They do not withhold any of the terrible threats. They are all sharing these persecution threats together. So their response to the persecution was to understand it, lay it out on the table, look at it together as a people. And what is their first response? After they're together, after they lay out all the threats, they live in reality, they don't try to hide these threats from one another to keep from frightening one another, they know who needs to be frightened. And it's not them. And then they pray. Their first response is prayer. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And the prayer goes on. And we'll look at each part of the prayer. So Peter and John, they don't go back to Galilee. They come back to their people. They don't withhold details of the severity of the threats. They tell it all. And they all hear it together. And they don't form a council or a committee. They pray. So what's the first thing we see about their prayer? Lifted voice to, voices to God with one accord. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said. So the first response of the people of God was to lift up their voices to God. No council, no study committee. They didn't call and get advice from people. They had been with Jesus, remember. They had already been advised by the king from his word what to do and who they were, and who they were to be. And note again the emphasis that they are all with one accord. We've talked about this before. They have been instructed by Jesus. They have heard Jesus' word. And they are in agreement together on the key truths of the situation in which they find themselves. This is what it means to be in one accord. They share an accurate understanding of the reality in which they stand at that moment. That Jesus Christ is their Messiah, the foretold Messiah of the Old Covenant writings, who was crucified according to prophecy and who was raised up from the dead. It was necessary for him to be crucified. And that he ascended and that he was enthroned at the Father's right hand and that he is pouring out his Spirit on them and that he has commanded them to preach repentance and remission of sins in his name, starting at Jerusalem, but to the whole world. They are of one accord about what their mission is. And they know that he hears their prayers, and that he will protect them, and that he will provide for his church as they go and do his will against all enemies. These are a people of shared faith. Together. They have a common faith together. And this is a common prayer. This is a corporate prayer that was prayed together. This is why we confess our faith together during our corporate worship together. That we may have together a corporate faith and be of one accord. What do they do first? They appeal to God as creator. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So they begin their prayer by returning to Genesis 1. They don't quote it directly, but it's an allusion to God as creator. And in this, they are proclaiming the invincible might of God and his preeminence over all things. And that anyone who would come against his might is going to fail. That does not end their reference to Scripture. Next, they go to Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 really is the foundation of their prayer response. What does it say? They say in their prayer, so they're quoting Scripture back to God in their prayer, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. 
So they quote the scripture from Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, as the basis of their understanding of their current situation. And so by doing so, they are also showing forth their understanding and reliance upon all the principles, I said this already, upon all the principles associated with this psalm that goes on to answer the question posed by David. So we're going to look at Psalm 2 as a result of their emphasis on Psalm 2 in their prayer. What do they do next in their prayer? They express the persecution to God and they interpret that persecution that is occurring based upon Scripture. Verse 27, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. So their prayer goes on to define the fulfillment of Psalm 2 in the futile, rebellious attempts of Herod, Pilate, the Romans, and the Jews to destroy the Messiah and His kingdom. So the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and all the plotting and scheming that went along with it is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. And subsequent machinations and schemings by kings and rulers and judges of the earth continue this same persecution, which is what the people of God are now experiencing. They quote this psalm as fulfillment of the crucifixion, and yet now they are continuing to experience the same foul fruits of those who are rebellious against Christ. So are they fretful? They are not fretful. Verse 28 takes us to the the deep spot that we must all get to in prayer. To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. These rebels did not write history's story. These rebels are just those delivering a cautionary tale to those who came after them. The people of God in their prayer go on to express their trust in God's perfect sovereignty over all things, even over the diabolical murder of Jesus, their Messiah. They're filled with trust in God's love and power and wisdom. And this is a great mystery to us. But listen carefully again. To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The most wicked act in history, the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God, was foreordained before the world began by God Himself. Next. In their prayer, they acknowledge the threats. They acknowledge the temptation to fear. They acknowledge that these threats really can influence them. It's indirect, but they say, now, Lord, look on their threats. So they go to the Lord together and they say, Lord, look on their threats. Their prayer asks God to look with them upon these severe threats. That conversation that they had where they laid out all these severe threats, now they take that and they say, Lord, look at these with us. And so they acknowledge that these threats are strong enough to terrify them into cowardly retreat and silence. By lifting up these threats before God, they're acknowledging that they're too much for them. They're too much for them. They're humbled in the reality of their own impotence. Apart from God's help, their own inability to not be cowed, to not be forced into submission by these threats. So what do they ask for? They know what they need. They ask for boldness from God to overcome their fear. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. This is the one accord coming forth again. We want to do what you've asked us, what you've commanded us to do, Lord Jesus. We want to do it together, but we can't do it without your help. It's a simple request based upon their humble acknowledgement of their need. These threats are terrible. They know the terror is meant to silence them. Recall, this is the same council that had murdered Jesus through its connection with the Romans, what, a couple months earlier. Same council. 
So they ask God for boldness to continue to speak His Word. They don't rush out and go back into the battle straight away. We'll show them. No. They know this is real. And they will fail without God's help. In addition, their supplication includes more demonstrations of God's power. Specifically healing, signs, and wonders. So not only do they ask for boldness from within, a great miracle from God, from the throne room of of heaven, but they ask for God to stretch forth His hand in the earth around them as they go and proclaim the gospel and demonstrate His great power in the earth. From His throne of grace, the Lord is listening to them. They have seen, you see, these people have seen the wondrous combination of miracles and God's word preached. Remember the miracle happened? The lame man is healed 40 years. The council, too scared to come against them because of that. They saw that. They're preaching the word and God is healing and it's providing a way for them. They see that combination. So they ask God to continue to stretch out his hand from heaven for more healings, more signs and wonders in Jesus' name. They glorify God. They glorify Christ as God's holy servant. They call him God's holy servant. Now the Lord replies immediately to them. And this is a beautiful thing for us to see. While we don't necessarily have shaking and filling and boldness immediately when we pray, we can know that our Father in Heaven hears us. And He replies to us. We may not necessarily see it as clearly as they did. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. So the Lord grants His children help in their time of need. They've come before His His throne of grace with with boldness because of Jesus. And His help comes to them, we're told, when they had prayed. And so there's this demonstration of God's response that should build in us an expectancy when we pray. God shakes that place. Wouldn't that be wonderful to experience? But we should be able to go forth in faith even if He doesn't shake the place. God fills them with His Holy Spirit and they are blessed with their request. They are given what they desire. The ability to continue in their mission. The courage to resist fear and to speak God's Word in the face of even these severe and terrible threats. God answers their prayers. Now, with that in mind, let's Dig into Psalm 2. Matthew Henry says, we have here, speaking of Psalm 2, a very great struggle about the kingdom of Christ, hell and heaven contesting it. The seat of the war is this earth where Satan has long had a usurped kingdom and exercised dominion to such a degree that he has been called the prince of the power of the very air we breathe in and the God of the world we live in. He knows very well that as the Messiah's kingdom rises and gets ground, His falls and loses ground. And therefore, though it will be set up, certainly it shall not be set up tamely. So what does David say to open this psalm? He asks a general question and shows the the vanity of these individuals through this rhetorical question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So David lays it out. And it's a statement of their foolishness. Not just theirs, but the foolishness of all who resist the Lord and His anointed. This is a reference to Christ directly. Their international scheming against God, against Christ, is utter vanity. We need to understand this. This is not what it looks like from under the sun. We have to see things from heaven's perspective. These people are wasting their breath. And it's even so futile that their ragings will be used by God to accomplish His great purposes and will by no means thwart or damage His plan. Where do you look for your hope? Say, the cross of Jesus Christ. Who put him there? Well, we know God did. But who put him there in earthly terms? His enemies. 
his enemies. Our greatest hope was brought to us from God in heaven through the worst persecution that ever took place. Oh, are their ragings ever so vain. So David states clearly that the raging, unbelieving kings and rulers of the earth have done a couple of things. They have set themselves against the Lord and against his Christ. So what is motivating the rulers and the kings and the judges of the earth as described by the word of God is hatred for God and his Christ. And so what they do is that they come together, they talk to one another, they conspire together, they scheme together against the Lord and his Christ and his people. We're not conspiracy theorists to start with our default setting that unbelieving pagan leaders are scheming to put us under their feet. That is not conspiracy theory. That is starting with the scriptures as our starting point. Henry says it's combined in confederate opposition. They take counsel together to assist and animate one another in this opposition. They carry their resolutions unanimously that they will push on the unholy, push on the unholy war against the Messiah with the utmost vigor. And thereupon councils are called, cabals are formed, and all their wits are at work to find out ways and means for the preventing of the establishment of Christ's kingdom. And that was their command, was it not? Speak no more in this man's name. And it's the same today. Secularism, pluralism, are just modern words for what we see here, where you and I will be pressured and even commanded in some settings not to speak the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to live out his kingdom. And there's two aspects to that kingdom living. One is the proclamation of the king, and then the other is the establishment of the order of peace of the king through the beautiful fruits of loving obedience to him. This is what these people hate. How do we know that? Because they say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. They know they have to stop people from teaching in Jesus' name because then people will go on to live in Jesus' name, to love God and to love their neighbors. So that's their plan, to break God's bonds in pieces, to cast God's cords away from their eyes. I hope you don't see God's wonderful law as a bond that you want broken off of you. I hope you don't see God's beautiful, wonderful law as cords that bind you that you want to cast out of your sight. Matthew Henry says, let us break their bands asunder. They will not be under any government. They are children of Belial that cannot endure the yoke, at least the yoke of the Lord and his anointed. They will be content to entertain such notions of the kingdom of God and the Messiah as will serve them to dispute of and to support their own dominion with. If the Lord and his anointed will make them rich and great in the world, they will bid them welcome. But if they will restrain their corrupt appetites and passions, regulate and reform their hearts and lives, and bring them under the government of a pure and heavenly religion, truly then they will not have this man to reign over them. Christ has bands and cords for us. Those that will be saved by him must be ruled by him. I've got to say that one again. Those that will be saved by him must be ruled by him. But they are cords of a man, agreeable to right reason, and their bands of love conducive to our true interest. And yet against those is the quarrel. Why do men oppose religion? But because they are impatient of its restraints and its obligations. They would break asunder the bands of conscience they are under and the cords of God's commandments by which they are called to tie themselves out from all sin, and to themselves up to all duty. They will not receive them, but cast them away as far from them as they can. So when someone is pressing the name of Jesus out of the public square, what they're really after is lawlessness. Lawlessness. And 
license for selfishness, which leads to a world of pain and multiplied miseries, as opposed to the kingdom of Christ, which brings us into his peace and the glory of love displayed in the world. So how does the Father respond to this? Derision, wrath, and he enthrones his king. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill. So we know that the first three verses are about what Herod and Pilate did to Jesus. And so these verses we know are about God the Father raising him from the dead and ascending him to his right hand and placing him on the throne of the cosmos from Mount Zion. So the Father is not troubled. He sits in the heavens. That's where He is. He who sits in the heavens is not threatened by all the kings and all the rulers of all the ages of this world or any multiplied millions numbers of worlds that there could ever be. He is God. He shall never be threatened by His creation. The threats of hell and hell's men cannot touch Mount Zion cannot reach him. He is in the heaven, a place of such a vast prospect that he can oversee them all and all their projects. And such is his power that he can overcome them all and all their attempts. He sits there as one easy and at rest, out of the reach of all their impotent menaces and attempts. There he sits as judge in all the affairs of the children of men, perfectly secure of the full accomplishment of all his own purposes and designs in spite of all opposition. The perfect repose of the eternal mind may be our comfort under all the disquietments of our mind. We are tossed on earth and in the sea, but he sits in the heavens where he has prepared his throne for judgment. The Father has derisive laughter for these who would come against Him. He laughs at the ridiculous and impotent ragings of hell and hell's men. And by extension, can't you see, He invites us to laugh with Him. Heaven's perspective sees properly that all of these deceived and angry leaders are smaller than grasshoppers in the eyes of God less than a speck of sand before heaven's shore, passing like vapors, soon, soon to be bound up and cast aside, forgotten forever, if they persist in their rebellion. The commentary says the attempts of Christ's enemies are easily ridiculed. God laughs at them as a company of fools. He has them and all their attempts in derision And therefore the virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised them. Sinners' follies are the just sport of God's infinite wisdom and power. And those attempts of the kingdom of Satan, which in our eyes are formidable, in his are despicable. Sometimes God is said to awake and arise and stir up himself for the vanquishing of his enemies. Here is said to sit still and vanquish them. For the utmost operations of God's omnipotence create no difficulty at all, nor the least disturbance to his eternal rest. You see, the prayers of the people of God then and since then that bring the kingdom from heaven to earth are prayers that start with the peace of heaven in our hearts, knowing that his enemies are nothing in his sight. He places upon his enemies this wrathful speech. The Lord in heaven speaks via his actions, his deep displeasure with all those who hate his son and his son's kingdom will be brought into the distress and terror of Christ as king of the cosmos. He is the one that the Father has given the rod of iron. And he is the king despite their best efforts. The one they put on the cross on the hill of Golgotha in shame with a crown of thorns. Hallelujah. The Father has made 
his very own king on the great throne of Mount Zion with the best of crowns on his head. And none can unseat him. These impotent fools put Jesus in a dark and empty grave and he who sits in heaven stretched out his hand and raised Jesus up to invincible life and crowned him as king over all the earth where all the angels and all the risen saints of heaven now worship him. Let's not forget who he is. They can only for hours and days place Christ on a cross and in a grave, but the Father has set Christ, his son, his king on heaven's throne forever, unshakable, reigning in his settled This is our king. The Lord Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father, has all power both in heaven and in earth, and is head over all things to the church, notwithstanding the restless endeavors of his enemies to hinder his advance. It's about faith, brothers and sisters. Faith sees heaven. Faith sees Christ. Faith sees him doing what he said he would do. Our faith keeps us from being brought into these grasshoppers becoming monsters in our eyes. So next, the enthroned son king reports the father's commission. The son is on the throne and now he tells us about what he heard as the father enthroned him, as he was bringing him to heaven. I will declare the decree. So who's speaking? This is Jesus Christ speaking, the Son King, S-O-N. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So when did this happen? Around A.D. 30, when Jesus ascended into heaven and was presented to the Ancient of Days like we're told in Daniel 7, and He was enthroned. That's when this happened. And since that time, Jesus Christ has been reigning over all that He was given by the Father. Brothers and sisters, the counsels of foolish earthlings fade. But the decrees of heaven are from everlasting to everlasting. While these fools get together and scheme in their decrees against God, the decrees of eternal glory from God the Father and the Son and the Spirit have already been made. Christ references those when He speaks to us. The decrees of heaven are from everlasting to everlasting. And Christ here first points to the eternal decrees of heaven as the foundation of His throne. This is what theologians call the covenant of redemption where the Father and the Son and the Spirit three in one before time began determined all that would occur to best reveal the glory of God in creation. Matthew Henry says the kingdom of the Messiah is founded upon a decree an eternal decree of God the Father. It was not a sudden resolve. It was not the trial of an experiment but the result of the counsels of the divine wisdom and the determinations of the divine will before all worlds. And the Father spoke these words to the Son, and the Son, who is King, reports them to us via David, the prophet. The Son tells us that He was told, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. What is this? We would perhaps have a difficult time knowing If it were not for Acts chapter 13, this is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This, who knows, could be the words that Jesus first heard with His resurrected glorified body from heaven when His Father brought Him forth from the dead. Acts 13, 28-33 And though they found no cause for death in Him, they asked Pilate that He should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised Him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are His witnesses to the people. 
And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that He raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son today. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So Psalm 2, we are told in this section here, is foretelling the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the fathers raised the son from the dead. The son tells us about it. And then he tells the rest of what he heard from the father after the resurrection. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So the Father invites His resurrected Son to ask for all the nations of the earth as His inheritance and to ask for all the ends of the earth for His possession. This is not merely a spiritual possession. This is the possession of all, both visible and invisible. The ends of the earth mean the ends of this earth, this globe. All of it belongs to Jesus. All the nations are His All the lands are His. All the seas are His. All the hills are His. And the stars and the moons of the sky and the sun shines for His glory. It's all His. This is who we worship. This fueled their prayers and should fuel ours. Now, it seems Jesus must have asked the Father. Because listen to what He says in Matthew 28. It should sound familiar to you based on what you've just heard from Psalm 2. This is the Great Commission. We've all heard these words. But have you ever connected these words with Psalm 2 and the promise that was given to the Son that if He asked, He'd be given? That's what the Son says. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. There it is. He asked. It was given. All the nations... All the earth belong to Jesus. And from that spot, he gives the commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the form of Christ's kingly, royal, glorious conquest is through his name, Baptism into the triune name and subsequent obedience to everything that He's given to us in His Word. All authority in heaven and on earth are here, are His. On earth means the Father has given the nations and the ends of the earth to Christ, His Son, who is King. And if we could look at the deed, what would be the date? Sometime in AD 30. The deed of this globe was given to Jesus. Sometime when he was placed on that throne, his father said, this whole world is yours, including all the nations. And they are all called to submit to him. And in our work as his people, we go forth and proclaim this message. So Christ's kingdom includes all the nations and all the earth here and now. He is the reigning king of all. And the people who prayed this knew that. They knew that they didn't have to wait for some future time for that to be true. They knew they could pray right then according to who Jesus was then at that moment and who he is still now. Jesus is also given authority to punish those who rebel against him. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Those who prayed that then understood that. Do we understand that? All those kings and rulers who persist in their vain, hellish ragings against Christ, their true king, will face not his tender arm of blessings, but rather his crushing rod of wrath, breaking them and dashing them to pieces. This fueled the confidence of their prayers, knowing that while they may suffer persecution and even martyrdom, the final victory belongs to the one who holds the rod in his mighty right hand. We saw this first in Christ's destruction of apostate Judaism through the Roman power, AD 70. We've talked about it before. But then also extended to the expansion of Christianity thus far in the world. This is how Jesus works. We can go through history and see him 
doing this. Bringing his blessings through the proclamation of the gospel and the people who submit to his ways and then patiently warning those who come against him until such time as he eventually removes them out of the path of his kingdom's advancement. Matthew Henry says this was in part fulfilled when the nations of the Jews, those that persisted in unbelief and enmity to Christ's gospel, were destroyed by the Roman power, which was represented in Daniel by feet of iron and as here by a rod of iron. It had a further accomplishment in the destruction of the pagan powers when the Christian religion came to be established but will not be completely fulfilled till all opposing rule, principality, and power shall be finally put down. So this rod of Christ's power, he exercises throughout the course of history in his way, in his perfect timing, upon those who refuse to submit and particularly upon those who get into this devilish, hellish, raging persecution of the people of God and do not back off of it. We see here that it will be a victorious kingdom because of his limitless jurisdiction and power. He is placing his enemies under his feet and their prayers they knew that their king would be victorious. And they knew that the threats against them were not threats that would be effective. Matthew Henry says, Observe how powerful Christ is and how weak the enemies of his kingdom are before him. He has a rod of iron wherewith to crush those that will not submit to his golden scepter. They are but like a potter's vessel before him, suddenly, easily, and irreparably dashed in pieces by him. See Revelation 2, verse 27. Thou shalt do it, that is, thou shalt have leave to do it. Nations shall be ruined, rather than the gospel church shall not be built and established. Do you hear that? A nation will be ruined before God will allow his church to not be established. I have loved thee, therefore will I give men for thee, says in Isaiah 43. Thou shalt have power to do it. None shall be able to stand before thee, and thou shalt do it effectually. Those that will not bow shall break. Brothers and sisters, this is an important part of praying properly, is understanding who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world, where he is, who he is, what he's been given and what he is doing. And this should fuel our prayers with the same expectancy and faith that we see in this first century church. So David doesn't leave it to the kings of the earth to figure it out on their own, even though any sane person should be able to figure out what to do. He actually spells it out for the rulers and the kings of the earth. Now therefore be wise, O kings of the earth. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Yes, this is fulfilled in Herod and Pilate and the Romans and the Jews against Jesus. But here, David expands it and says, it's not just true of that situation. It's true of any situation where political or ecclesiastical rulers have set themselves up against Jesus Christ and are seeking to silence his people and using threats to keep them from living out the kingdom of God. It's true for all time. And we can pray this same prayer. There's only one sane course of action in the face of such a matchless, glorious king. David lays out the path of escape for these vain, rebellious kings and rulers and judges. So this is specifically directed towards political rulers, but also ecclesiastical rulers, but rulers particularly. This is the psalm that I preached aloud in the lobby of the state house in South, uh, over in Columbia when we went over there to call on our leaders to stop the legalized killing of babies in our state. But see, I want us to see this part here. The rod has not been lifted. The mercy of the Son, who is King, is on display. These people have sorely harmed His bride. These people have deeply hurt His body. They have offended Him. 
but rather than immediately destroying them with his rod of wrath, he gives them time to repent. The path to repentance is laid out before them. And it's not complicated. These exhortations, they are to have the wisdom to see the folly of their rebellion and the humility to be instructed by his law instead of rejecting his kingdom and wanting to cast his cords out of their sight. And they are to embrace reverent worship of their king instead of hating him. Not only is he their king, he is their God. Not only must they obey him, they must worship him. They are to kiss him, we are told. And they are to rejoice under his reign instead of embracing foolish anger towards his kingdom. And then this demonstrated love and allegiance comes in this beautiful metaphor to kiss the sun. They want the whole world to know they love Jesus and that they follow Jesus and that their rule is an act of allegiance to the King of Kings. Their rule is done in His name and for His glory. That's what good political rulers do. That's what good ecclesiastical leaders do. They do it in the name of Jesus and for His glory and they promise allegiance and fealty to Him with glad and worshiping hearts. And He also gives them a warning So first he gives them these exhortations, but then he gives this clear warning. If they don't return to the true king, and they continue to attack his people and his kingdom, his anger will come forth and destroy them. The rod of his wrath will not be forever held docile in his right hand of might for those who go on in their rebellion toward him and their hatred toward his people. Henry says the father is angry already. The son is the mediator that undertakes to make peace If we slight him, the Father's wrath abides on us. John 3.36. And not only so, but there is an addition of the Son's wrath too, to whom nothing is more displeasing than to have the offers of his grace slighted and the designs of it frustrated. The Son can be angry, though a lamb. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the wrath of this king, this king of kings, will be as the roaring of a lion. And will drive even mighty men and chief captains to seek in vain for shelter in rocks and mountains. If the Son be angry, who shall intercede for us? There remains no more sacrifice, no other name by which we can be saved. And unbelief is a sin against the remedy. Finally, we're left with this great and wondrous brief, but great and wondrous encouragement. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. First, we see this is a further inducement to the rebellious rulers and kings and judges of the earth that he will receive them back. He will forgive them. Though they had sorely mistreated him and his people, he would forgive them and bring them back into the place of his blessing. Further encouragement to them to repent by the great promise of blessedness under his reign. Come to his table of grace and partake of all the blessings. And they are theirs if they will repent. No matter how terrible was their sin. Think of Paul. But in addition, this great promise, brothers and sisters, is held out for all those who trust in Jesus Christ, the great Son who is King on the throne of Mount Zion. Henry says, those that trust in him and so kiss him are truly happy but they will especially appear to be so when the wrath of Christ is kindled against others. Blessed will those be in the day of wrath who by trusting in Christ have made Him their refuge and patron. When the hearts of others fail them for fear, they shall lift up their heads with joy. And then those who now despise Christ and His followers will be forced to say to their own great confusion, now we see that blessed are all those and those only that trust in Him. In singing this and praying it over, we should have our hearts filled with a holy awe of God, but at the same time borne up with a cheerful confidence in Christ, in whose mediation we may comfort and encourage ourselves and one another. Praise be to God for His Word. So a few questions and principles. To apply to our day now. Why does persecution occur? 
Because God's people, it, it occurs when God's people love Him and by His Spirit and Word obey Him in real life. Not just hearers of His Word, but doers of His Word demonstrating obedience to His glorious law of love that we read every Sunday here at Foothills Christian Assembly. They do it in one accord. They're not distracted or poisoned by the allurements of the flesh and of the world. They have become a real threat to the current world order. They are the conduits by which the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth. And so the, the rebels hate this real world demonstration of Christ and His kingdom. Have you faced persecution? Well, ultimately, you're going to be persecuted because the rebels hate Jesus and those who look like Him. So they will attack His body. This is why persecution occurs. It occurs when God in His grace grants His people to believe in Him and to obey Him with one accord and to not go through dissipation and distraction with the baubles of the flesh and the kingdom of the world. That's why it happens. So how should we understand persecution? Should we see why why it happens? How should we understand it? Well, first of all, we we want to look to the text. Remember, God is the mighty creator. Remember, Christ is the king over all the nations and the peoples and the lands. And remember that all rebellion against him is ridiculous and will fail. The sure victory is underway. We remember who he is and what he is doing. We do not allow ourselves to be focused upon the threats or those who bring the threats. Next, we need to know that persecution should be expected in a society that hates God. The mathematics of persecution have to do with how many Christians there are in a society living out the kingdom of God and how many non-Christians there are in the society who hate God who are in places of political and ecclesiastical power. That will define the amount of persecution and the severity of persecution that the church experiences. But the simple reality is that persecution should be expected in a society that hates God. Next. Persecution should be an encouraging sign that we are obeying God in some demonstrable fashion. Persecution is a blessing. We should rejoice when we're persecuted, Jesus tells us. And it is a fruit of faithfulness to God. It is a fruit of loving God and loving others. So we should rejoice when we're persecuted. Next, persecution is also a sign that enough Christian unity and corporate faithfulness exists to represent a threat to the diabolical rebels who are in places of power. Persecution doesn't come typically just against isolated individuals or a couple of voices here and there. It's when God begins to solidify and bring his people together, expressing his kingdom in a way that is a movement, you might say. Next, persecution occurs and should be expected to occur as God brings his kingdom from heaven to earth and has, as his will is replacing the devil's will and the flesh's will in society. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, it's part of why we go on to ask him to deliver us from the evil one. Because we expect and anticipate to be attacked for our possessions, our reputations, our families, and our lives to be threatened by those who hate Christ. This is the history of the church. This is what happened in the first century in the book of Acts. 
and what has happened ever since then. And we should not be so foolish to assume that it cannot happen to us in our nation. Next, persecution cannot overcome God's spirit in us. If Christ dwells in you, you will have the boldness to resist the terror. Because God has given us, we are told in his word, not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's what we've been given. That's what we can count on when we pray these prayers. This boldness that they received came from the spirit of God. This spirit is ours. And persecution cannot overcome God's spirit in us. These threats are real and they're terrible. And our fear is real. How am I going to be able to feed my family? Am I going to lose my house? Am I going to be able to pay my taxes on my land? Maybe I'm going to lose my car. How are we going to eat? Come on, pastor, you've got to be practical. Well, yeah. But we've been given not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound. Next, remember, persecution is foreordained and actually a part of how Christ shows his glory by using the very persecution meant to harm him and his kingdom to actually sanctify his people, advance his kingdom, and frustrate his enemies. I don't know what, where this happened. I think someone was getting wrapped on the knuckles or something, and they'd say, Thank you, sir, may I have another? Thank you, sir. May I have another? That really should be the response of the heart of faith to persecution. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Because we know that God is using this to bring us closer to Him, to advance His kingdom, and to frustrate His enemies. Okay. This is understanding persecution. So how do we respond? Foothills Christian Assembly, look around. These are our brothers and sisters here. How should we as a people respond to persecution? All right. First of all, I would hope that by God's grace you're being persecuted. By God's grace you're being hated because of your identification, not because you're a jerk, <laughs> but because of your identification with Jesus Christ. That you speak His name aloud as He gives you opportunity. That you give Him praise in your daily work as He gives you opportunity. That your life and your family and your marriage is lawful and demonstrating the beauty of his kingdom, you'll be persecuted. So first of all, by God's grace, hopefully we're going to be, because we live in a world that hates God. Can we agree on that? Does this culture hate God? Do our political rulers, by and large, many of them hate God and hate his ways? Yes, indeed. Is there vast swaths of the church that are filled up with ecclesiastical rulers who hate God and his word? Yes, there is. So we should, by God's grace, be persecuted. So how do we respond? First of all, let's be persecuted together. Okay? Let's be together. Let's don't run away to Galilee. Let's be together. Next, let's be of one accord. Let's agree together on the simple... Christianity 101 doctrines of the Bible. That we are to be His His witnesses to the ends of the earth. Preaching repentance and remission of sins. And demonstrating our gratitude towards Him through lives of love and obedience to His law. We must be of one accord as we come together. And then I would say it's reasonable to define the threats allowed together. We don't know how long the report of Peter and John took, but they did go through the threats. So before they went to prayer, they were together. They were of one accord. They were still in agreement about the mission and the plan and who Jesus is and what they're supposed to be doing. And they got all the threats out on the table together. They understood the threats together. Next, pray to God in faith. Pray to God together, corporately, in faith, remembering 
God is our creator, Christ is our king, and the futility of these threats against us. And we must ask him specifically for boldness, and in that, being humble enough to acknowledge that we will run away. We will run to Galilee without his help. That's what you'll do. That's what I'll do. And in these prayers, we ask him to conquer his enemies and we pray with expectation. And we should hope to see very real, very real answers. We should expect to see very real answers to this kind of prayer in the earth in real time. I think the Supreme Court ruling is an example of this kind of movement of God as a response to the prayers of many of his people praying like this across our land. Terry and I, deacon at Foothills Christian Assembly, have been praying together with this spirit regularly. And we could list for you the answered prayers that we have seen. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. Our hearts are filled with gladness at who you are and what you have done for us. And we do rejoice, Lord God, in the persecutions that have been ours and those that will come in the future. And we set our hearts and minds upon you, Lord Jesus Christ. And we lift up our hearts to you, even in anticipation, asking you, Lord Jesus, to grant to us boldness from your throne to do your will. And we ask you to continue to demonstrate your great power in the earth, glorifying your name as we go forth, speaking and living the glory of your kingdom, the glory of your gospel. Oh, we love you and we praise you, Lord Jesus. We lift these prayers to you in your holy name.